0: This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are
1: we going to stand with God? come with me. If the word of God says it, I believe it.
0: And that's the way it is.
1: And now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Thank you so much for joining us again. Any Christian who has been paying attention in the last several years is sure to have noticed how many famous pastors of late have engaged in some shocking immoral behavior that ended up really killing their ministries. And even more shockingly, some have dared to lay low only to relaunch their own churches later as if their previous sins and scandals never even happened. What are we to make about all this? More importantly, how do we get back to stressing biblical and moral integrity in the pulpit by emphasizing the eternal perspective that is essential in any ministry? We're going to talk about it today with Daniel Henderson, a former pastor of over two decades. He's now the president of Strategic Renewal, and his new book is called Glorious Finish, Keeping Your Eye on the Prize of Eternity in a Time of Pastoral Failings. Daniel, it's great to have you back to the show. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, thank you, Janet. vital topic, and glad to be in conversation with you.
0: Well, it is a vital topic. I've been a little worn down, I think, by a lot of these stories that have (laughs) emerged over the last several years, as you can imagine. It's just been crazy. But you actually say in the book, you were called in twice to churches where you succeeded a pastor who fell. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like to be the next man in after somebody fell in a church, a pastor?
1: Well, it's obviously nothing you plan to do or want to do. Uh, Some people call me the OSHA pastor, you know, coming in and clean up the mess. (laughs) And uh, I never wanted to do it once, wound up doing it twice, but that's where all the lessons came from. Both of these were high visibility uh, moral failures that made regional and, and even national news. Uh, very large churches, and um, both very different. The first one, the pastor had actually covered up uh, his his immorality and his indiscretions for eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one, it had just happened when they discovered it. But in both cases, lots of hurt, obviously a huge trust deficit, the name of Christ being dishonored, and a real rebuilding process. But, you know, the lessons from that, Janet, really have become the framework for what I wrote in the book, because you learn a lot when you're the cleanup guy.
0: Well, I can only imagine that. That is a really hard calling, but an important one, because part of what you're doing when you're the man called in next, you're trying to not only lead the church, but you're also trying to restore, it would seem, faith in the ministry. Did you feel that way when you came to those churches? I have to, in some sense, redeem the office of the pastor and the eyes of these people who have been so discouraged by what happened with the last guy?
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, and again, they think, you know, this this guy, uh, you know, preached, baptized, married my kids, and all the while these things were going on under the surface, so you really do have to rebuild trust. And, um, you know, and as you know, that comes from faithfully teaching the Word. It comes from, you know, real accountability that you build into the, the you know, just the processes of ministry, right. and in our case, some extraordinary uh, focus on prayer, because, Only the Holy Spirit can really rebuild trust and restore people's confidence in church leadership and, in some cases, even in the power of the gospel. Sometimes you think, well, if it didn't work for him, will it work for me?
0: That's a really important point. What do you think about pastoral failings in general? It's always been something that has occurred, but maybe in the Internet age it seems like it's happening more frequently, especially with some of these big-name pastors. But what is your take on why this might be going on And, and if there's any special element to the fact that we're seeing more of it?
1: Well, I think it always, and in the book I talk about this, I think it always starts with just spiritual neglect, obviously neglecting their relationship with the Lord, That's number one. You know, when that's vibrant, that's the ultimate accountability. It's the ultimate spiritual health or ministry. But I think in time, uh, that leads to neglect, leads to self-reliance. And that self-reliance can lead to professionalism and a sense of entitlement and pretty soon, uh, as I write about in the book, there's a compartmentalization that, that moves into one's life, mm. separating one segment from the other. Uh, you know, it certainly is more visible today, Janet, because of the Internet and the news. But I, I do think it's more prominent today as well, just because of all the unusual temptations that I think, are unique to our media craze culture as well.
0: Yeah, well, all of that stuff is really important. I want to get into more of it in detail. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are also about the fact, I've seen this over the course of my life, it used to be, generally speaking, at least in my experience, that if you were part of a denomination, you had men going to seminary, you had ordination, you had the church doing all these interviews, and that still goes on today. But this phenomenon of men starting their own churches and kind of becoming the star of the church, is a rather new phenomenon. Do you think that that has any bearing on what we're seeing in terms of the later pastoral fallings that come about?
1: Oh, I think it does. Again, the the motive for getting into ministry obviously affects everything. And you know, when Paul said, if you want to be a, an elder, a bishop, pastor, you desire a good thing, First Timothy 3, what that meant back in Paul's day was you're the first one to get your head chopped off when hmm. persecution comes, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so it's really a commitment to sacrifice and, and, you know, seriousness about the teaching of the Word of God. Unfortunately, again, today, uh, kind of the rock star clergyman phenomenon has motivated, I think, a lot of. People begin in the ministry for the wrong reasons, you know, to try to prove their significance, to become a person of importance. And um, they take a lot of shortcuts getting there. And obviously that winds up becoming part of the the reason for the downfall.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine the Apostle Paul caring about Twitter followers or book deals. Somehow I just don't (laughs) think he would have cared about that. (laughs) That's right. Totally agree. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned something really important, which is when we're looking at the biblical qualifications for pastors, we would go to passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Mainly those... Traits that are mentioned in in distinguishing who should lead the church, who should be the elder pastor, elder, really are character qualities. And I wonder how much you would regard the issue of character as being a fundamental issue to examine more on the front end when you're hiring a pastor.
1: Well, that's obviously we know that's why Paul cautioned the church by uh, you know too rapidly laying hands on someone and was appointing him to ministry. Uh, there needs to be a proven uh, track record of character and faithfulness and clearly a, a grasp of the Word of God that is going to be healthy and and Christ-honoring. Uh, again, that that's why so many of our denominations and associations build in things like ordination and, and internships and residencies, yeah. because it requires us to see the lifestyle of someone before they take on that very serious task of filling a pulpit, preaching the Word, and leading by example.
0: Yeah, amen. Now, you say something really good. You say a lot of good things in this book, but one of the things that you say is church leaders commonly teach about living with an eternal perspective, but what does this look like in the daily choices of ministry life? So broadly speaking, how would you answer that? At the beginning
1: of the book, something just really riveted me, and I wrote about it, and that is that, you know, we've got to really define what we're really called to, and I asked the reader, you know, complete this sentence. I'm called, to, And we put a lot of different answers in there, you know, to be a deacon or, you know, it could be a pastor, a radio host, a mother, a father, whatever. But the verse that really riveted me and gripped my heart, 1 Peter 5, 10, says that we are called to His eternal glory in Christ. Yep. And that may sound very ethereal, but it's very, very practical. I, I'd say in the book that Everything we do this side of eternity is preparatory. That's all it is. It's it's a vapor. It's significant, but it's significant in light of what's on the other side of eternity, and that is Christ's eternal glory. And, in fact, I just got off a coaching call with about ten pastors with the book, and we were really saying how practical it is to realize that you've got to decide what the scoreboard is. And the scoreboard is in heaven, obviously. The scorekeeper is perfect and he's on the field with us. You know, he's not just looking from a a distance. He's on the field with us. He sees everything we do. He never misses a call and his reward is eternal. And I think that shifts our focus away from comparison and we call it the nickel-and-nose game, you know, how many people came and what they gave. And it really helps us realize the essence of our calling is eternal, and we've got to keep that in front of us on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I would imagine a lot of pastors say it's difficult in the ins and outs of daily ministry to remember that. That's why it's so hard, because I have so much on my plate.
1: Hmm. I always say discouragement is a temporary loss of perspective. Mm. <laughs> and that's a daily battle for every pastor. And, you know, busyness and uh, criticism and financial pressures, I mean, the list goes on and on, can blur our perspective. And so I think every day we, we've got to come back to the truth of what are we really called to. Where is the scoreboard? What really matters? I got to keep my motives pure and
0: my methods honorable
1: because this really matters in the forever kingdom of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
0: Excellent. We're going to pause. Daniel Henderson with us. His book is Glorious Finish. We'll come back to the conversation after this break on Janet Meffer Today. Janet Mefford today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her, most of the time in her heart she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28 and every gift helps. To donate, please call now 855 855- 402 Baby. That's 855 402 2229, or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion, let's save some lives. Please call now. Now with your gift 855 baby that's 855 baby 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at Janet Mefford.com
1: you're listening to Janet Mefford today and now here's Janet
0: Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Daniel Henderson. He is president of Strategic Renewal. He's also a former pastor of over two decades and he is out with a great book called Glorious Finish, Keeping Your Eye on the Prize of Eternity in a Time of Pastoral Failings. And this is also something that every Christian needs to keep in mind, not just the pastors, Daniel. Obviously, that we all have to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. How would you begin to advise pastors to start out with that eternal perspective? Perspective and maintain it. What sorts of things need to happen in the daily life of a pastor to keep that eternal perspective?
1: I think, Jan, it all begins with a life of personal worship, obviously. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the, the contrast to that is spiritual neglect. But to, to really be a worshiper, and I don't mean leading services on Sunday, right? But right. I mean really being one who seeks the heart of God in meaningful rhythms of life and a spiritual pursuit, and we talk practically how to do that. I suggest even the book, and I think that leads to a heart of humility. I think worship and humility are really two sides of the same coin, mm. and then that sets a whole trajectory. I think on a daily basis as to to why you do what you do, how you do it, what you, what tends to trigger you for good or bad or otherwise, and um, I, one of my my fellow uh, pastor said it once, uh, Vance Pittman is his name, he said, I used to think I was called to ministry, but now I know I'm called to intimacy, and ministry is just the overflow of my intimacy. And I think that really summarizes it really well as to to what the source is of a really eternally significant ministry.
0: Right. But now, of course, I think of some of the pastors that I've talked to over the years who say, I'm so busy, I'm an administrator, and I've got to do this and that and everything else, and I almost feel like I, I, I am neglecting my time with the Lord simply because my time is so spoken for all the time. How do you carve out a time each day really to study the Word as a Christian, not necessarily doing the academics of preparing a sermon only? But having that fellowship with the Lord every day and that time in the word, are there some tricks of the trade you've learned along the way as a pastor on how to make sure that takes priority?
1: A couple of things come to mind. One of the things we talk a lot about in our prayer training and we coach pastors in terms of prayer leadership, but it's the difference between seeking God's face and seeking his hand. You know, his hand is what we need him to do for us today. His face is who he is. Mm-hmm. And even the model prayer Jesus gave is really clear. You always seek his face before you seek his hand. <laughs> And I would say, if all you do is seek his hand, you may miss his face. But if you seek his face, he'll be glad to open his hand. As it relates to pastors, again, we can tend to be praying just so we can get through the week, just so we can manage a a board meeting, just so we can get a sermon together. I would suggest all those are good prayers, but they're prayers that are seeking God's hand. We need to set our hearts every day to seek God's face, to seek him simply for the beauty of who he is, not what he does for us, not how he's going to help us manage things, so that's one, and another thing I talk about in the book, Janet, and I have practiced this over the years, is when you get to that point where you're running on fumes, you're just over busy, you need a reset. And uh, I have recommended in this book and to pastors that, you know, at least twice a year you need to go away and, and have a personal spiritual retreat, not to plan ministry, not to strategize the vision but simply to be and to be with Jesus and to practice the of disciplines of, of solitude and silence and fasting and meditation and prayer and Bible reading and good, rest. Good. Uh, because you just you have to do that. you got to reset your soul every once in a while in the treadmill of ministry.
0: Well, you do. And would you say that as a pastor, you would have more of a unique spiritual warfare experience than you would if you were not a pastor? Do you find differences in the sorts of things that pastors go through via the enemy uh, as opposed to the layman?
1: I sure do. Obviously, the enemy wants to take any of us out. But I use a bowling analogy, Janet. I I say I'm not much of a bowler, but one thing I know, it's really hard to get a strike if you don't hit the head pin. And the devil knows that. (laughs) And it's not that pastors are more important, they're just more influential. And the enemy knows if he wants to take out all ten pins, he's got to hit the head pin. In fact, the best strike is between the head pin and the one next to it, which is often the marriage, you know, or relationships in the staff, whatever the case is. So. Yeah, the enemy's a strategist, and he knows what a a real high-impact hit really is which is why we really have got to pray for our pastors in that regard.
0: Absolutely. And, And what about accountability? What do you think is an appropriate accountability structure for a pastor? You know, in many churches, there will be additional staff members who can keep you accountable, but you know that that's not a fail safe. So what is a good system that you found for holding pastors accountable? So, you know, in the best case scenario, a moral failing would not totally be possible because there are too many people who are around you and really paying attention to you.
1: Yeah, I talk about four dimensions of accountability that actually uh, was written about in another book called The Resilient Pastor. But I really think they're right, and they're all relational, uh, Janet. One of them them is a mentor. I think every pastor needs an accountability to a mentor who can really invest in his life from further down the road. Uh, The second is an ally, and that, as you mentioned, would probably be a staff member that we work together. We try to be transparent and authentic. But that's different than the third one, which is a confidant. And even in the coaching with our pastors, we talk about the fact it's really not fair to make an ally a confidant. Mm. Uh, Because even an elder or staff member, uh, they have a dual loyalty. One is to you and one is to the church. And if you share something that could be potentially compromising, hopefully you don't, well, they're going to have to side with the church. You need a confidant that you can spill all your guts with, who's committed to your holiness and your sanctification, but probably outside the system. And the fourth one is a protege. We don't think about that. Uh, But for years, I mentored 12 young men every year. And that's accountability, too, because you have these younger men looking at you from a different angle. So I think real accountability is a mentor, an ally, a confidant, and a protege. And I've been challenging pastors and our coaching, make sure you've got all four of those dimensions of relationship built in because I think that'll really be a biblical process of, of accountability.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, when I think about the, the pastor's marriage and you're so much in the spotlight, do you tend to find that among the pastors who have moral failings, there's a problem in the marriage? Or do you think it's more along the lines of there was a character flaw to begin with? Or, you know, what sorts of dynamics tend to be there when you do see a pastor, for example, who who commits adultery?
1: Yeah, well, in the, in the area of adultery, of course, there are numerous reasons why a pastor may be disqualified <clears throat> related to money or abusive, you know, behavior, whatever it is. But mm-hmm. certainly, yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest antidote to, to crabgrass is green grass in your own field, right? And right. I think <laughs> the the reality is that, um, you know, pastor who goes after the bad stuff, crabgrass after astroturf, whatever you want to call it, it's because the the grass of his own marriage has not been... Kept healthy and green and vibrant, and so there certainly is a connection there in in that regard.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. That's true. What about churches? Because when you're, you know, listeners who are tuning in and hearing about this may not be pastors themselves, but they'll say, boy, we really want to support our pastor and make sure that our church is not going to go through some of these scandals that we've seen in the news. Do you have advice for churches on helping their pastors really stay focused on Christ? Things like perhaps giving them more opportunity to get away and to be able to have these times with the Lord and not packing their schedules so tightly, things like that?
1: Yeah, a number of points of advice I would give. Uh, the first one, as we already mentioned, is pray. You know, it's hard to be a critic and an intercessor at the same time. Mm-hmm. And even mobilizing the church to pray. I was blessed over the years with Pastor's Prayer Partners, over 100 men who prayed for me every day. I don't know that I'd still be in ministry, and I would understand the mystery of it all, but without their prayers that sustain me. I think encouraging a pastor to keep good priorities. We are very strong about the priorities of prayer and the ministry of the Word. Uh, I say, you know, often that the devil doesn't have to destroy a pastor. All he has to do is distract him. Hmm. And so just pray that he'll have clear biblical priorities. Yes, making sure he's taking his vacation, making sure those around him are encouraging to rest and stay focused. And uh, my friend Jim Cimbala, you know, told me when he read this book, he said, you know, everyone in the pew ought to read this because it really helps him understand the realities of the battle they face and the choices they have to make in order to even pray more intelligently and be practically supportive in any way they can.
0: That's really good. You know, and we had talked a little bit about calling in the front end, but how would you define a call to the ministry? Because that's really where it all begins. You you do have, unfortunately, men who are in the ministry, who at least I've experienced shouldn't be in the ministry and probably weren't called to be in the ministry. But how do you tell the difference when you know, a man really is called and a man is not called. How do you deal with that before any of these things ever come about? Because it seems if you start there, there might be some, you know, good moves you could make that would fend off some of the problems that might come along later.
1: Yeah, an anecdotal response first, Janet. I was sitting with Henry Blackaby in the green room one time. We were speaking at a conference together, and in his sage wisdom, he put his hand on mine and said reflectively, he said, you know, I'm convinced after all these years— that there are more men in ministry out of insecurity rather than out of calling. Oh, wow. And that was riveting, you know. And I think, uh, you know, to to use ministry as a means to bolster your own sense of self-significance, I think, is always a misfire. And you can see the fruits of it, you know, the drivenness, um, the insecurities that come up, you know, when conflict arises, et cetera. And certainly you can be genuinely called and still struggle with insecurity. I think all of us would relate to that. But, but, I think just a Christ word focus, I mentioned Jan, I just got off a call with a bunch of pastors, and we ended with this whole focus that the Bible doesn't talk about dying and going to heaven. It talks about dying and going to be with Christ. Amen. And I think the mark of a truly biblically called leader is their focus on Christ, not on ministry, not on building a church, you know, not on growing an organization or having a platform. I think the real evidence of someone who's called, genuinely called, is their passion for the person and the glory of Jesus Christ uh, through his gospel.
0: That's so right. That's so right. And that returns us back to what you said earlier, that this uh, experience of personal worship of the Lord Humility goes along with that. The more that you spend time with the Lord, the less you'll rely on yourself. You know, he must increase and I must decrease becomes much more of your experience, I think, when you really have your focus on Jesus Christ and and not just on what am I going to do today in my ministry.
1: That's right. One of my mentors years ago, John MacArthur, you probably know him. I worked for him for a few years. Yes. He always said that the key to humility is a high view of God. Well, you know, that's more than just having a textbook of theology. That's a daily experience of God that renews your mind around the beauty and wonder of who he is to help you see yourself as you are. And, and part of that is realizing his unconditional love for you so that you're not having to prove yourself in ministry. That's But great. You're letting Christ live out his life for you.
0: Love it. Glorious finish. Thank you. Daniel Henderson with us and we'll be back. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800 E S W O 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet
0: Mefford. This hour of Janet Meffer today brought to you by Bible League International. Help us to send Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. $5 is all it costs to send one Bible. We have been so grateful for your support. And if you'd like to continue to help us get Bibles to Asia, the number to call is toll-free, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at Janetmeffer.com. And by the way, when you go over to Janetmeffer.com, I have a new blog post up today. I don't get to update it nearly as much as I would like to do, mainly because of time, mainly because we're working on radio stuff and it's hard to get a lot of time to write. But I put together a piece today that I think is really important for people to read. And I don't often say that, but it has to do with a problem I've been talking about for the last, I would say, several months. That is all of the journalism, or as I call it, garbage journalism that is out there about churches spreading the coronavirus. Now, I don't have any doubt that people have caught coronavirus because they were exposed to it at church. I don't have any doubt that that's happened. There are enough people out there who are at church and in closed spaces and maybe people not far apart enough or what have you, and they contracted it. I also believe people have contracted it at Walmart, and I believe they've contracted it at Target and Kroger and all kinds of other venues across the country, except when you open up the pages of the Grey Lady, the New York Times, or you look on the Internet and you see some of the stories that are out there from a number of different leftist media sites, you would get the impression that the entire reason we are seeing the increase in cases of COVID-19 across this country is because of churches And I have been watching this and I have been reading all of these stories. I've talked about some of these stories on the air, but now I've put together a piece that really puts it all together to say, this is garbage journalism. Again, it's not that I think no church has ever had a transmission of COVID-19. It's just that when you go into these stories in detail, you realize they don't have any proof of most of what they're claiming. They just don't have any proof. Now, let me give you one of the examples that has just come up. There's a story here from AL.com in Alabama, and here's the headline. A small Alabama church had a revival, and now 40 people have coronavirus. Now, what is the impression you get when you hear that headline? They had a revival, and because of the revival, 40 people got coronavirus. Not that the revival caused coronavirus, but people being there at the revival was the reason that they contracted coronavirus. So let's listen to what this story actually says. More than 40 people have coronavirus after attending a week-long revival at a small North Alabama Baptist church last week, Pastor Daryl Ross said today. Who's the source of the story here? The pastor. The pastor. Is a pastor a health department spokesman? No, he's a pastor. Only two male members' cases were serious, he said. One respiratory, he almost got put in the hospital, but he's okay, Ross said. The other one fought it off with two days in bed. Okay? So we already know at the outset, everybody has recovered. Which is pretty fast, if you think about. It. If you think about it, they just contracted it, and they're all fine now. Every single person. The whole church has got it, just about, Ross said, and that includes himself. He said he tested positive but has few symptoms. Now, somebody coming into this story from the outside might say, and the story is what? Because already what they've told you is a bunch of people got a virus and they're all fine. If that were the lead in this story, you would immediately click on the next story, wouldn't you? You'd say, so what? Why would anybody care? Everybody got coronavirus and everybody's fine. Okay, the end. That, that was a great story. Should I freak out over this? They go on to say the Warrior Creek Missionary Baptist Church is located in Marshall County, a little community called Strawberry. And the pastor said, we had church Wednesday night. We were in revival morning and night services. On the way back over Thursday is when we found out, I got a call that one of our guys in the church has tested positive. So we shut down Revival and by Friday night, I've got church members sick everywhere. Hold the phone a minute. I don't know when this Revival started, which day of the week it actually started. I'm going to just guess that it started on a Monday because it was a week-long Revival. So it probably started on a Monday night. Wednesday night is when they had church. So he says, he puts the timeline at Wednesday night. We had church Wednesday night. But that doesn't mean that's when the Revival started. But let's just go with Monday. Started Monday. They had church Wednesday. Thursday is when they find out that somebody had coronavirus. Friday, he has church members sick everywhere. Now, why is that something that raises flags? I'll tell you why it raises flags with me. When you look at the CDC data and some of these other studies that have been put out about the incubation period for COVID-19, what you will find out is the median incubation period is between 5 and 6 days. 5 and 6 days. So that's an average. So some people will have a fewer number of days before they start to exhibit symptoms and then more people will be longer. CDC has said between 2 and almost 15 days, but median is about 5 to 6. What we are to believe here is that every single person in this church caught the coronavirus presumably on Monday or maybe Tuesday. And they all showed symptoms within five days. Now, I find that a little bit statistically amazing, don't you? Because when you're talking median, that means median. It doesn't mean everybody exhibits symptoms by five days. It means that's the average, the median. So (laughs) for everybody in this church who got sick, they all showed up with coronavirus just a few days in. Seems a little weird to me. Is it at all possible that any of those people may have contracted coronavirus somewhere else? you don't know, you don't know. I would ask a few questions if I had been the reporter on this story, did any of the people in the church gather together in homes? Did they have a small group Bible study? Did they hang out with each other in other contexts? Were they all at a similar event before this revival? I would wanna delve into some of that and do some of this contact tracing, but it's just thrown out there. They all got COVID. It's all terrible. They all got it at the revival, but this raises some questions. Then they talk about Baptist revivals and what they are, bringing people together. The visiting evangelist followed the same pattern and has no symptoms. The man believed to have brought the virus to the revival also had no symptoms. Again, we're back to the whole COVID-19 as non-plague Look, we know that people have died of COVID-19. I'm not discounting that people have died of it, and that's a tragedy. But by and large, the people who have died from it are people who are elderly and already vulnerable or people who had underlying health conditions. That's who's basically dying from COVID-19. Now, there will be a few exceptions here and there, but that's basically who it is. The huge lion's share of people who contract this virus are asymptomatic and recover fine. I don't know. Every every single day at some point, I I just kind of stop for a moment and I say, why are we flipping out over this? I mean, this is insane. They really are treating it like it's the bubonic plague. But I I don't see in this particular story why you would even get alarmed when everybody recovered. Oh, because they might have given it to the reporter. Who knows? So I look at this whole thing and I don't really understand. You have a number of stories, though, that come out in the media. Where these pastors basically blame themselves. I've seen it over and over and over again. And I don't know if it's the reporter calling and saying, I understand that you have a number of COVID 19 cases at your church, Pastor. What do you want to say about that? And you have some good hearted guy who says, It's probably my fault. We shut down the church. We shut down the revival. We shut down the Bible study. We're going to do better with social distancing, we're going to meet outside. But it was my fault. I never should have done it. I know. I've seen a bunch of stories like that where the pastors basically self-flagellate over this. And I wonder why it is that you don't have anything in a lot of these stories where they're quoting the local health department saying, yeah, we can definitively prove that every single one of these people contracted it at the church. We know for a fact in fact, I, I talked to my friend, Dr. Andrew Boston, who I've had on a number of times, an epidemiologist and a clinical trialist, formerly at Brown University as a professor. And I said, how would you definitively know where you can a coronavirus? And he said, the only way you can really know is by contact tracing. But contact tracing in and of itself is still a guess. You don't know for sure. You would have to know exactly where somebody went at every moment of every day over the previous two weeks or so. And how would you get that information? Can you remember everywhere you've been in the last two weeks? I guess if you're hyper-quarantined, you might remember, yes, the highlight of my life was going to the grocery store on Wednesday at 10 a.m. But even then, you don't know, maybe you caught it from the guy who, who put his hand after coughing onto your cart. He you caught it there in the parking lot, and not from somebody coughing on you in front of the avocado bin. Who knows? In the produce section. We're going to come back. There's more to come. This is Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855 Six five twenty five sixty one. That's eight five 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 six five twenty five sixty one. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org dot org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org dot slash jmt. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places. Of the country, let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for five dollars or fifteen for seventy-five dollars. Just call eight hundred Yes Word, eight hundred Y E S W O R D, eight hundred Yes Word, or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia, and God bless you for caring.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet.
0: We are back. Thanks for joining us. Another story I had mentioned where you have the media going berserk and blaming churches for the spread of COVID-19 absent any hard proof was that story of that poor young girl in Fort Myers, Florida. She died at the end of June. She had been at a church event. And there had been about 100 kids there. And they just over at ABC News said this Florida teen who died of COVID-19 attended large church gathering. Did you prove that she contracted it there? And here's what's really notable about this. It was allegedly about 100 other kids who were there on June 10th. She contracted COVID-19, showed symptoms on June 13th. So, again, we're back to the incubation period question. She exhibited symptoms three days later. Maybe she did. But that's really quick. Are you sure she got it there? Then they don't even say whether or not any of the other hundred kids even had coronavirus. So if there were no other cases, from whom did she catch it? If none of them ended up having coronavirus, how could she have caught coronavirus at the church event? It's just not even explained. And then they go on to say, there have been allegations that the church had a COVID party. And then they quote the church saying, no, we didn't. That's defamatory. And that's completely false. We never had a COVID party. But ABC News puts it out there. Why, if you know that it's false, would you even include it in the report? I'll tell you why. Because you can vilify a church that way. And you can vilify pastors that way. And you can kick Christians that way. And you can keep up the narrative that if COVID-19 is spreading in your community, it's probably due to those evil Christians down at your local church who will not comply. That's what's going on. And it is journalistic malpractice. In some cases, it's libel. Let me give you an example of this. This is another example. Just recently, Liberty University announced that it is suing the New York Times, and I'm glad to see that they're suing the New York Times. Do you recall there was a story back in March, we talked about it at the time, and it had a headline, Liberty University brings back its students and coronavirus fears to... And then it went on to say the decision by the school's president, Jerry Falwell Jr., to partly reopen his evangelical university, enraged residents of Lynchburg, Virginia. Then students started getting sick. Dun dun dun. All right. There were problems with that story to begin with. I talked about it on the show at the time. You can go back to our archives and listen to what I had to say. They ended up updating the story and changing things because they got some stuff wrong. Paul Krugman, an opinion columnist at the New York Times, then put out another piece entitled This Land of Denial and Death. Here's an excerpt from that column. He said, what lies behind Republican science denial? The answer seems to be a combination of fealty to special interests and fealty to evangelical Christian leaders like Jerry Falwell Jr., who dismissed the coronavirus as a plot against Trump, then reopened his university, despite health officials' warnings and seems to have created his own personal viral hotspot. Okay. now The New York Times is being sued for 10 million bucks, 10 million bucks and another three hundred fifty thousand dollars in punitive damages and attorney's fees by Liberty University. Jerry Falwell Jr. tweeted out the reason for this on July 15th. He tweeted this today, Liberty University sued The New York Times because they came to our campus from actual virus hotspots got that? They, they, they were in viral hotspots and made up completely false claims about COVID-19 cases at Liberty. In fact, we finished the school year without a single reported case of COVID-19 on campus. But here you had Paul Krugman. Oh, he's such a genius talking about Falwell creating his own personal viral hotspots. It's just completely irresponsible And then Falwell added, we are holding the New York Times accountable for their malicious and false reporting and their violation of the measures we took to protect our students. Politically motivated attacks by the mainstream news media that defame and libel conservatives and Christians should not be allowed in the United States of America and will not be tolerated by Liberty University. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. It's not that we should outlaw it. It's already outlawed. Libel is illegal. Libel is illegal. But here's the problem. It's very, very difficult to win a libel suit by definition, because when you have all of these things put into place as far as what it takes to prove libel, there's a very high bar and a very high standard with which I actually agree because we don't want to make it so strident and so, you know, so draconian that it would kill free speech. This is, this is going back a long way. You want to have a really difficult time proving that, or you'd have people filing lawsuits right and left and drive the press out of business. Now these days, I don't think I would be sad about that at all because I think journalism stinks, but, um, Back when these laws were crafted, I think there was a really good idea behind the idea that you have to have a very, very hard burden of proof in order to level any sort of libel charges against a newspaper and win. Uh, This is a self-created problem. This was created by the journalism industry itself. They did it to themselves. That's why when you talk about fake news and President Trump talks about fake news and you have, you know, Nick Sandman, who was absolutely vilified by outlets like CNN and The Washington Post, winning these huge settlements huge settlements because of how he was just absolutely maligned without any proof and they got the story exactly wrong when they were talking about Nick Sandman and you know he has a face that deserves to be punched and all the all the other stuff where you, he goes back to these Covington Catholic kids who were standing up there in Washington DC and it, you know pro life kids and they were at the pro life march and there was this native american man who was harassed but the way it was put together the video was put together it made it look like they were mocking him when in fact some leftists were mocking them and they were innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. And all these media outlets ran with a story and they were all wrong. And now they're paying a dear price and they should pay a dear price. But you have to self-regulate. If you're going to be believed and if you're going to be a trustworthy source for people to rely on for their news, then you darn well better have a track record of getting your facts right. That's why I object so much to what's going on, not just because I'm a Christian, but because I was a journalist for so many years. And this bothers me. I was one of those journalists who really cared whether or not what I was reporting was true and verifiable. If you're going to talk about people spreading COVID-19, you better have some solid evidence to go on. But again, you go back to the New York Times writing their piece in early July, and they talked about, whoa, whoa from the New York Times database, we've seen 650 cases of COVID-19 linked to 40 churches and, and Christian events across the United States. Well, so what So what Reason.com, I point this out in my piece, Reason.com does a little bit of math. And at the time that this happened, they said there were 3.1 million confirmed infections. Now it's over 4 million. But here's what they said. They said the number of confirmed COVID-19 infections in the U.S. is now 3.1 million, meaning the church-related cases identified by the Times account for 0.02% of the total On the face of it, that does not seem like a major source of coronavirus cases. Right. And there are something like 385,000 churches in the United States. So the ones tied to COVID-19 infections represent around 0.01% of Christian congregations. Also note that the Times talked about church-related infections since the beginning of the pandemic. So its tally of 650 does not even tell us what has happened since services resumed after lockdowns were lifted, which is ostensibly the story's focus. The article said that many of those infections happened during the previous month, but it never says how many. More to the point, the Times never said how churches compare to other settings, such as bars, restaurants, offices, factories, house parties, and Memorial Day or Independence Day gatherings as a source of virus transmission, nor, I would throw in, leftist riots. We don't see anything about the trend of coronavirus growing because of leftist riots, Black Lives Matter activists, or Antifa. Have you seen anything about Antifa spreading the coronavirus? I certainly haven't. Even if half of the infections tallied by the Times happened recently, Reason said, that would still mean other sources account for around 99.8% of newly confirmed cases since mid-May when testing should have begun detecting post-lockdown infections." But see, Reason.com is being reasonable. The New York Times is not. This is why the New York Times is getting sued by Liberty University, because they don't really care whether or not something is true. They are just activists. And when you become an activist, you cease to be a journalist. And you might as well just put Weekly World News at the top of your masthead and call it a day, because you're certainly not journalists anymore. And that's a tragedy because I still continue to believe we need actual journalism. Journalism serves a wonderful and important, very important purpose when it is done ethically and when it is done right, which is why I will continue to press and continue to plea for people who still have ethics in the field of journalism to get your act together. And hold your newspaper accountable. We cannot allow these leftist activists to overcome the truth. They're supposed to be reporting it. We got to leave it there. Thanks so much for being with us here on Janet Meffer today. Always a pleasure to have you here. God bless you. We'll see you next time.